Welcome to the World of Intelligence, a podcast for you to discover the latest analysis of global military and security trends within the open source defense intelligence community. Now onto the episode with your host, Harry Kemsley. Hello, and welcome to this edition of World of Intelligence by Jane's. My name's Harry Kemsley, your host for today. And as usual, my co-host, co-conspirator is Sean Corbett. Hello, Sean. Hi, Harry. Hi, Sean. So in number of our episodes with a number of guests, we've had the opportunity to talk about the potential uses and factors and consideration for the use of open source information to derive intelligence. And often, Sean, I think we've heard it said by a number of guests that the intelligence community is not yet fully engaged with open source intelligence. It's not necessarily a matter of not wanting to. Maybe there are cultural blocks. Maybe there are other technical blocks, but not yet fully engaged. So what better, we thought, than to ask the director of open source enterprise of the CIA, Randy Nixon, to join us and talk about exactly this issue. So I am absolutely delighted to welcome Randy, Randy Nixon. Randy, thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. As a longtime military analyst, um, to be here with James, I'm kind of geeking out on that myself because I've been <laughs> a user, consumer, and, uh, and fan of your company for uh, as long as I've been in this business. Well, well, thank you very much, Randy. It's great to have you here. Randy Nixon, since last December, has served as CIA Director of Open Source Enterprise. Randy first joined CIA in 1991 as a student intern. He served five years active duty in the Army and returned to the agency in 1998. Most of his career was spent working war zones or unstable regions until Randy was tasked to stand up the Office of Advanced Analytics in 2015. When not at work, Randy has three sons, two dogs, a very understanding wife, and loves anything that is competitive. Andy, great to have you here. Okay, so Randy, let's get started with your understanding of what you and the agency believe open source is, and then open source intelligence uh, as a capability. What, how do you regard open source? Yeah, the definition keeps changing over time. You know, open source enterprise is what we are called today. Before it was open source center. If you go all the way back to 1941, we were FIBIS, the Foreign Broadcast Intelligence Service. And it was easier in the FIBIS days. You know, our job then was to, to read all the newspapers, do all the translation, collect all the radio. Uh, and then TV came along and disrupted our entire world. And as you keep moving through time, it was social media and then big data. And now it's uh, commercially available data sets. Tomorrow it will be something else that comes along. Um, if it's out in the open and it is collectible, or purchasable, that's open source. And uh, it's right. a great source of information that we do everything we can to take take full advantage of. Right, so we've certainly talked about that, Sean, plenty of times in the past. And, and Sean, you have your four points of open source intelligence, which I'm not going to ask you to repeat again, but if anybody's interested, go back a few episodes, you'll find Sean talking about it. But what I think is clear to, to us, Randy, is that the scale of open source information that's available to us the variety, the velocity at which it moves, and of course, the veracity issue, which no doubt we'll, we'll talk about at some point today, if not today, another time. These are the opportunities and challenges in the open source arena, uh, and ones that I'd like to explore to some extent in the opportunity we've got now in the next 30 minutes or so. So in your estimation, 
What is the position of the CIA currently, the agency's view of open source? Is it still seen as the poor twin? Is it the, the outer sibling that's not really that important? Or is it increasingly now seen as a very important part of the agency's work in the intelligence realm? You know, I get asked that question a lot, and I usually take the different approach. I dispute the idea that OSINT hasn't always been important. What it's not is, you know, they don't make movies about us. <laughs> There's one stanza in one song by the feuds called CIA Man that talks about open source information. That's about the best we get in, in the Hollywood world. But throughout my entire career, I have been a user of open source, both for the agency and the Army before that. Sometimes that open source is James and looking at your military equipment, but it's always been right there. I think what we're having today is a renaissance in the public's understanding of the power of open source. And I think there's several main reasons for that. One is the explosion of information. Uh, we talked about that a little bit a second ago, you know, from TV, radio, to social media, to commercial available. The, the amount, the scale of open source is exponentially growing uh, year by year, and the public's understanding of that has grown. The other is private sector has moved into this space in a way that we haven't seen in the past. And with that, uh, you're able to advertise and talk about your successes in a way that we can't in open source center. So yeah. Jane's, Bellingcat, Y'all are in the news, um, and some of the amazing work you do is highlighted by the press all the time. New York Times, Washington Post, they've done some great open source work as well. We're also doing on those same times some amazing work that James and Bella Cat and the others are doing. We just can't talk about it from the very tactical OSINT of what our targeters do, working with operators and warfighters, to the strategic OSINT that goes to our policymakers, policy and to the technology and innovation that we do to make sure that we can use this vast scale of information. Um, we just, so to me, it's not, a, has OSINT, is it being used in a different way? Is it more important than it was in the past? And I don't think so. I, I, to, as a user, it's always been valuable. Yeah, that's interesting. Sean, I, I want to come back. But I can see you got you got a point. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say that's such a refreshing and, and I uh, attitude, and I agree with it, actually, that, you know, we've, we've always used it. But I think the key now is that the formalization of it for good reasons, because because people, you know, both internally and externally are seeing the power of it. And as you said, the explosion of data. If, if, and if you look at the exquisite collection capabilities, we kind of saw that same evolution in terms of there is so much data out there now that we've got. How do we manage it? And I know we're going to come talk to this uh, in a little while as well. But but you know the same is now true of open source intelligence. And I think it's worth saying that you know the, the world is such a complex place in terms of security threats and challenges that we really have to not just you know pay homage to, but really get into all sources from wherever we can globally and really embrace. And the other thing about open source intelligence in terms of not getting into the definition, but it covers all the separate ints, as I would call them. So whether it's human, whether it's geoint, you know, whether, whether whether it's open source, uh, sorry, operational intelligence, it covers all of those. So that makes it even more powerful. And I know we might get on to speak later about how we'd best to use that. But yeah. for me, it's all about the formalization. And of course, being, being a government organization, we absolutely have to, or you absolutely have to make sure the rules and protocols are there to make sure it can be used in the right way. So it's the accessibility and the formalization that I think is the big thing that we're going through now. 
I think we should come back to that point about formalization, maybe in a second, Randy, in terms of the organization of the open source community, commercial and otherwise. But let's come to that in just a second. All I wanted to say in terms of your point, I agree with, with Sean, refreshing point of view, actually. And the one we've heard, Sean, actually before from one or two people, they've said, what do you mean open source? What else is there? We only use open source. Anyway, you think about the diplomatic community, they live and breathe in an open source environment. And they use exquisite where they actually absolutely have to. So I think there is perhaps a misperception about the utility, but it's the formalization, the fact that it's becoming, quote, codified, it's becoming a tradecraft, it's being recognized as maybe a separate um, part of the internet intelligence community. That's the bit that I think is perhaps novel today. And I also agree with your point, Randy, that there's been a sort of coming of age. We had a couple of podcasts ago um, looking at the Ukraine conflict and the amount of open source intelligence, and I do mean intelligence, that's come out from various organizations about what's happening on the ground that is quite remarkable and frankly looks a lot like the sort of stuff you would see previously behind a vault door. But um, that, I think, is what's happened in the recent times. Who knows? Maybe there'll be enough of that that eventually Hollywood will notice and they'll start to make movies of the open source center and you'll be a star again. Let me move on, though, if I may, to the uses as they stand. Where do you see open source intelligence now that it's had a breakthrough? Where do you see open source intelligence going? Given where it's now, where do you see it going in the future? What's the uh, the potential for open source for an agency like the CAA? You know, our greatest weakness today, and I think you probably find it in your company and other places as well, is the vast scale of what open source and the collection is. It's, it becomes a usability issue to our analysts and operators and warfighters because there is just so much of it that we can deliver from Open Source Center and from the intelligence community, from my other partners, uh, to the user. Um, the ability to get through that uh, is it's just impossible. So for us, it's how do we find uh, the gold nuggets in all of that? Uh, I think I've heard it described. How do you find the needles in stacks of needles and, and fields of needles? That's really what we're doing today. I had read there's like 12.8 quintillions of bytes of data produced every single day. Most of that's garbage, um, cat videos and BS like that. But there are the most important things are buried in that. Yeah. So. I think while I described it, we're in a renaissance in people's understanding of open source, I think we're on the cusp of a revolution of what technology is going to do to us to make this vast amount of open source information usable. Um, right. You're seeing that in the press today, these large language models that you can play around. You know, you can write some great poetry with ChatGPT. Uh, I, I asked it to write a song about OSINT the other day. It did. It won't be a hit, but it was still pretty good. It helps raise morale. But you can also ask it to summarize vast troves of information and to help you find uh, what's important and make it more usable for our reader right from the very beginning. That's our future. Um, using that technology and where we're going with artificial intelligence and machine learning, and that takes that millions and millions of documents we bring in every second, thousands and thousands of hours of video. I mean, it, it makes it where we actually can deliver that to our consumers in a way that we've never been able to do before. And it's going to make that what today can be a weakness, our greatest strength. Sean? I think what you're saying, Mandy, is that you can actually use open source intelligence for any any subset of a problem. It's just finding the data, the right data, and assuring it. And I'm sure we'll get on to Tradecraft, my favorite subject, in a moment. But it's interesting, and it's back to this coming of age thing and, and sort of the renaissance, because, you know, until until last year, I'd have said that open source intelligence, is, it's good for foundational stuff. It's good for context 
So lots of good academic stuff. It's good for data that you know is there and reliable, you know, but I wouldn't really have, have said you can use it for what I would call current intelligence, you know, in terms of understanding what's happening now. There's always that CNN factor that, you know, they say they're always ahead of the intelligence community. I'm not entirely sure that's true, by the way, but, you know, leveraging anything like that can really help us um, with all the extra stuff that we've got. And, and my mantra has always been that, you know, one day, not too far away, whereas probably 80% of what we do now is through exquisite collection and that expertise, you know, and 20% is open source, I would probably flip it around the other way. I mean, that's finger in the air sort of thing. But, you know, it could well be that in the future, that the 80% is is derived from either publicly or commercially sources. But that 20%, the, the real value, add, value added that the IC brings, you know, uh, it can focus that and really bring out what needs to be done internally. Yeah, I would say it's probably not 80-20 uh, today, exquisite and open source. And I would take it even further. Some of that exquisite, it's being found because of the tactical open source specialists that we have that are helping put, put the operator on target or put the warfighter on target because you know, we... We are able to take that vast stroke of information and find them what they need to put them in the right place. Yeah. So, um, and many times what we're writing, even if it is 80-20 at the exquisite, the human the SIG, I probably could have written the exact same thing with open source uh, yeah, and, yeah. and delivered it to a wider audience. Now, yeah. is, is it as sexy? No, certainly not have the same funding as the other places? No, and it doesn't need it it's quite the same because it's a lot more expensive to do imagery or SIGIN or HUMIT. But I would say those ENTS, they they can't do it without us. That's a reason we say we, we're our vision is to be the ENT of first resort because it should be, because it's cheaper, faster. Um, it's not a problem if it leaks because it's out there in the open and it's what we should be able to use at the very beginning so that we can use our, our money and our exquisite and the things that are that are hurtful if we lose for what we need to use it on rather than trying to cover the entire world with it. Yeah. And I think I think I think to use your analogy earlier, you know, putting yourself in the right part of the stack of needles to find the needle you're looking for is one of those things that open source we see regularly, Sean, don't we, being used for knowing where to start. Indicators of warning, sure, but knowing where to start in that foundational and current intelligence piece is uh, and has been key for us. I'd like to move us on then, Randy, to facing up to this challenge of the colossal vast amount of information that's being generated. Uh, you used a phrase I'd never heard before, quintillion, I think you said, quintillion. <laughs> yeah, um, chunks 18 of zeros. Yeah, well, okay. I don't, I don't even know what that means other than to know it's bigger than I can imagine. Um, what I think that tells us is that the organization that we bring together to attack this problem within the government environment, within the commercial environment, the, how do we organize the resources we do have? I'm curious to know your view about how the US intelligence community faces up to this problem where we all agree open source intelligence is useful, should be exploited. So how do we organize? How do we how do we organize ourselves to be able to deal with the challenges and achieve the opportunities that open source brings? What's the best form of organization you can think of at the moment, Randy? Well, there's a lot of play on in my country and in the UK and others about should open source be its own agency. You know, I'll leave that to the to the politicians to debate. It would take acts of Congress to make that happen. What I know is um, in our intelligence community, um, the director of CIA, he is the functional manager of two ends. He is in charge of HUMIT and he is in charge of OSINT. 
Now he rolls that down for me to operationally uh, drive that for him. So a lot of the folks who are out there talking about should we be our own agency, they they don't understand how we do act as, as a community and as a federated model. So that Director Burns, he has his board of governors. We had a meeting of that last week. That's uh, the director and all of his counterparts where we help drive where OSIN's going as a community. Underneath that and, and meeting with, right now it's been meeting monthly, is our National Open Source Committee that's uh, chaired by myself, uh, my DIA colleague, and a DNI colleague. Uh, DNI is adding in an exec sec right now, and they'll be right there working as a close partner with us on OSIN. And from there, we drive collection and, and tradecraft and training and sharing of data uh, across the entire community. And then under that, we have subcommittees who are working these problems day in and day out. <laughs> so um, those calling for new, new agencies, I think they, they don't understand what we do do across the community. So while, you know, as a private citizen, I might have my own opinion as Randy Nixon in charge of Open Source Center, my job is to take the full authorities that Director Burns has and operationalize those with my counterparts across the community. And I can tell you that's being done and it's being done with a fervor. So when that also goes where people talk about resources, do you have enough resources? If they're only looking at me or only looking at DIA or NSA or others and our O centers and our professionals in this, sure, we look very small. But if you actually look at us as a federated community and how we operate and work together, you know, we're okay. Everybody can do more with more, um, especially yes. for when you're trying to cover the globe. Yeah. Um, but that's a zero sum game. You know, there's only so many tax dollars coming in. Indeed. So. indeed. Sean, you've got the, uh, you've had the background that might help here as well. You've worked in DIA as one of the first non-US citizens to be a deputy director. You've worked in the UK in very senior roles. You've worked in NATO. What's your view about how NATO or the UK might approach this same question of organizing OSINT as a, as a function within those organizations? Yeah, I, I think, uh, yeah, I feel I feel empowered actually to have a view on this because I, I don't belong to a government organization now. But, you know, it, it's <laughs> it's uh, so the first thing is when there's a new challenge or a new bright, shiny object, the, the natural instinct, oh, well, let's, let's create a new organization, whether it's, you know, a national open source center, whatever. But that exactly as Randy said, I mean, it, it's really inefficient because you've got to get all the trappings and all the admin and the J1 to J9 support, as you, you and I would know, so the full, you know, logistics, et cetera. And so, so it's it's kind of redundant, but I think it's more than that though, because what we're trying to do really is, is develop a capability. And I love the federated word. Be, in this case, it really does apply. Because you think about open source intelligence, it needs to be applied in different ways for different problem sets and for different decision makers. So the way OSINT is used within CIA, for example, will be different to the way that DIA use it because it's a different set. Now, but, but that's not to say that it shouldn't be done in a coherent manner. And this is where, you know, again, it's interesting what you're saying, Randy, because we need we need tradecraft to be reflective across the board. So what we're looking for is open source intelligence specialists. And I, I do contend, and we might get onto this later, that you do need specialists in open source intelligence. Just because you can Google something does not make you an OSINT specialist mm -hmm. at all. You know, it's just as specialist as all the other intelligences. So we need professional people that understand, that have tradecraft, that have policies and have rules and, and, and uh, you know, ethics and all those sort of things, legalities, 
So they need to be trained and they need to be trained in, in this similar way. So you've got that foundation there. And, and uh, it's interesting to say, I'd, I'd have put that down to uh, DNI, but obviously you're saying, Randy, the CIA, which is really interesting, actually. It doesn't matter who, as long as you've got the authorities and then they're cascaded down so that, you know, you can pick up one intelligence, open source intelligence specialist and put them into a different organization, similar as what we do with, with the other uh, the, the other ints as well. So I think that's really important, actually. So, you know, we do, we love to get wrapped around about organizational uh, discussions because it's fun over a couple of beers. And it's like, well, we own that. No, we own that. Well, it doesn't matter. But as long as the best practice, I think is what I'm trying to say, is shared uh, amongst everybody. And, and this is the tricky bit because this is cultural. So if you've got an OSINT organization within embedded within whichever three-letter abbreviation you want, having that awareness of what everybody else is doing, say, look, I, I don't really need this, but this is really good stuff. Who else will need it? Now, that is, that is a, an education thing. It's a time thing. It's a cultural thing. It's also a connectivity thing. And I, I always found that as one of the biggest challenges, actually, when I was working within the IC, whether it's UK, NATO or, or, um, or the US, is that... You know, as analysts, and I, you know, at the end of the day, I'm an analyst. It's like, this is what I'm doing. I'm really, oh, isn't it special? I don't go, oh, actually, right, such and such in that organization. You know. So so having that federated approach is really important, but also having that that sort of auth- single authority is also important. No, you're, you're exactly right. Uh, it's the sharing of what we're all doing. So here from the Open Source Center, we run the, the tech stack for the entire IC. So it's our open source data layer, our way that we deliver open source information and share. It's very important to us. Uh, my job before that, I ran Next Generation Trident. That's the IC search engine. So making sure that we're delivering our information on the high side. So I've done both. And Often what we're talking about inside of OSC, and I know my other counterparts are doing the same as, you know, we did this piece, you know, you name it, for our operators. Uh, should we also flip that into a different kind of product to get it delivered to others as well? And another point to go back to is how we view ourselves as federated. It's not just the our own intelligence. We work very closely with our liaison partners across the world. We have forums where we meet regularly there as well. We're sharing across ourselves. And we inside OSE, and I think that my counterparts as well, we talk a lot more about how it's the private sector as well and how we partner and work with you all because there's a lot of really good data and technology and just tradecraft and expertise is being done outside our walls and making sure we're aware of all of that uh, and bringing it bringing it to bear let me, let me bring us bring us to the role of the commercial sector alongside partners in the ic in just a second randy can i just just step back half a step though to something that i think you were alluding to sean and i think you've just said as well randy underneath all that you've said there's a degree of standardization that's kind of echoing out of that and that you get a sense of what good looks like. You capture that in military terms, you talk about doctrine, best practice, you capture those things and then you make sure that people are adhering to them. If I were devil's advocate, I would sit here if I was coming from a sort of startup industry world and say, we don't need all that standardization. We just need to know what the latest tricks are and we then share them and organically we improve as a community. One of the things that I have heard from previous guests is that we might get in the way of progress if we stifle progress, if we try and wrap it up too much. I think there is a need for good tradecraft, sharing best practice, sharing product. But one of the things that I I haven't seen yet is the ability to learn both ways. So there's not always a top-down model, but the community around you are able to share their best practice and their, their approaches, their new techniques back up to you as well. 
Do you see that as something that's already in place, or do you think that's something we could aspire to? I think there are pieces of it in place, and there's ways that we're looking to improve it. So we do need to be sharing our trade craft. And it's not just in, throughout the OSINT community, because you know, Sean said it earlier, it's not just going on to Google. But right. people who don't understand OSINT and the deep trade craft that we have on it and the continuously evolving trade craft for it, they make our job harder because they'll go out there and Google something. And then, uh, especially if they're doing it from inside any of our walls, and then, then for then the OSINT professional comes along and uh, it's already been compromised that we looked and where we would have, we would have been approaching it from a sideways direction and, and taking hours of time to make sure we did it right or having real exotic trade craft to get behind two factor or, or um, office location and all these things that are coming over that make our job hard. We have ways to do that and the ways to do it the right way. And, you know, a general analyst sitting at their desk doesn't understand that the operators don't understand that. And we have to do a better job of explaining why we, we are just as exotic as they are in the techniques that we all use as a community to do our jobs. It's not right. going google if you're going on to google then everybody saw what you did we don't want that because we are the intelligence community right indeed indeed sure yeah there's some really good points there actually balancing that need for structure and tradecraft with you know not making that stifle the, the, the ability to do stuff i think this is bigger than open source intelligence it's, it's the whole community and we're going to get on this of course we, we must do when you're talking about the application of artificial intelligence and, and machine learning at some stage we've got to learn how to trust the algorithms that are doing it you know right now it's magic in magic out Okay, it's a bit better than that, obviously. But even when we're getting to unexplainable AI, how do we manage that in the intelligence community anyway, when we do need to show our working, if you like? Now, you know, I've got a little bit of a different perspective from most people. If you look at the algorithm as being an analyst, if you like, you will trust the analyst up to a point because they've had training and because they, you know, they've had the right inputs. But if they get the things wrong, two or three times, or in some of my boss's case, once, they will never be asked to do anything again in terms of standing in front of the boss and analyze. So, so it, it's almost the same thing. If you've got bad, bad algorithms, as long as it isn't catastrophic that you've acted off that algorithm, then if it doesn't work, then you change it. So it's kind of learning while doing and having the flexibility to say, well, going off in that direction in terms of developing the, the you know, the, the, the technical capabilities is is paying dividends for us. Let's keep that going. And another one's going, OK, let's not do that. And so it's always you're always going to have the human in the loop. It's another conversation we've had that you will ne never get rid of the analyst by doing that. And open source, I know it is an argument that pumps. Well, if you can do open source intelligence, why do you need these really skillful analysts? Well, you know, there's a reason for that, because they actually take all this data and turn it into the so what and the what if that only analysts can do. So I'm not scared about that, but embracing it is quite a challenge. Yeah, I think there's two points there, Sean. One is it's our tradecraft has to be continuously evolving. So uh, even yesterday, we ran a class for the very first time about how to ask questions of large language models in a way that helps get you answers or how you may have to ask a series of questions to get the right answers that you're looking from from this new technology. That's very powerful in what it can do for us in these large corpuses. Same thing with the machine translation. It works great on some languages. It works okay on some others. And you have to know which ones you can use. It doesn't mean I'm not still going to deliver something in a very hard language that the machine spit out a first draft on, but we still are teaching our experts. And we speak more languages in OSE than any other part of the government I've ever worked with to also look at that and make sure that it's right. Because one word being wrong can change the entire meaning of what we're trying to deliver there. So tradecraft is always moving. I've worked in 
capability management for the UK Ministry of Defence. And I know that government procurement is often lambasted for being incredibly not agile, but incredibly slow. Um, so I want to use that as a segue into the role for commercial organisations to partner more fully with the intelligence community. My contention is that the commercial environment can move more quickly, can be more agile with technology, can find the pitfalls as much as it can find the benefits of it, and then bring that, sort of insource that into the intelligence community. That's my hypothesis, if you will. What's your view about the role, Randy, of commercial organizations in and around the intelligence community? I think they're increasingly great partners, and uh, I think the agency and the IC in general has gotten a lot better about uh, opening the doors to to those partnerships. I mean, historically, it doesn't matter if it was us or DOD, you know, you would think that we worked with the you know, five big companies, and that's about it. If you go back to the World War II era, I mean, there's an entire industry that grew up around this. My job previous to OSCE, uh, for a year, I ran our organization called Digital Futures, and in there, we were really pushing how we revolutionize how we work with the private sector. One of those things we did was a broad agency announcement called Digital Hammer. Uh, we have over 300 companies that are signed up to participate on Hammer, and they're from across the United States. So from there, we'll put out an unclassified challenge, and then the companies, uh, in a very short matter of time, can give us back a, a summary of how they would accomplish that. So on, take for instance, if I asked for industry you know, out there on the cutting edge, and on Hammer, we have everything from brand new startups that are just getting their first Series A from a venture capitalist all the way through large companies that have been around forever, and they can compete. Uh, so they can, we can say, I'm looking for the best new OCR for whatever language you want to talk about. And they, in two weeks' time, will send us a three to five page white paper on how they would accomplish that. And then we can rapidly say, in that case, I get 35 papers. That's 35 companies that got a chance to be seen. And in many cases, three-fourths of those will be companies who have never done business with us before. So we're opening the door to them. We can then very quickly narrow it down and say, okay, I want to see full proposals from these five, and you've got 30 days to get it back to us. So now we're up to six weeks since I put out the problem set. And then we, from there, we can narrow down to one to three or however many and say we want to actually test it. We'll take it to one of our labs and work with that company and see how it works. And then at the end of that, I have sole source justification and can very rapidly be working wow. to bring this technology on. On the other side of that scale, on uh, an open source, we can, because we're working on the, uh, not on the high side systems, we can start working with companies super rapidly. I mean, uh, and so if they, if Microsoft develops something or James develops something, you know, like we love Intara, so I'll give you a plug on that. <laughs> we can very quickly be working with you on the low side systems and testing this. So uh, I see OSC as the tip of the scale on what innovation can be done with throughout the IC. And then from there, what, what the lessons we have from that, we can start working to bring it onto our high side systems, which do take longer. And that's the when people think about the traditional systems and how we work with companies, they're thinking about how do they get on our high side systems. That is long, and it should be because the because of the threat that that brings to us. Yeah, yeah, fantastic, John. I come to you just just one one second. So you mentioned digital hammer. That sounds like a, a an awesome uh, process. Is that something that organizations that listen to this podcast might actually be able to join? Is that something they can apply to be a part of? Yes, uh, they should send a note to DF dash engage at uci.gov and we'll get you all the information and it's very simple we made it we made the barrier entry easy on purpose um well and we'll give you some other paperwork to fill out that you would need if you actually win a 
win a program, but historically we've said you're going to have to do all these security checks that can take 18 right. months before you even get to compete. We've made it where we're telling you to get started on that, but we want you to compete even before that's done. Fantastic. We'll make a point, if we can, Sean, of getting that uh, address in the podcast notes so when people look at the podcast, they can see the address right there and make sure people access it. Sorry, Sean, you had a point. No, I was just going to say first that that's going to be educational for us to see how many new requests you get. I suspect you're going to get some really interesting ones now, actually. But just to your point about about uh, the commercial world and, and its agility, I always think, yes, that's absolutely true. But the agility depends on what the demand signal is, because I know many, many companies that build something that is just amazing, but there's no requirement for it. Or the crime is too expensive, so nobody afford it. So the key for me in the in the IC and, and commercial well, and any government and commercial partnership is setting sufficient a demand signal that people have got a reasonable confidence that what they're developing might be of use. You know, I've seen too many companies very, very confident about what they're producing, and it is great, but but they don't understand what the requirement is. So you know, you come along, and go, well, that's no thanks very much, and then they feel all aggrieved that government hasn't listened to them. So that partnership, which I think in the past, and I'm not saying it's in this case at all because it doesn't sound like it, you know, has always been the difficult bit where you know you need to be a little bit coy about what your you know what your gaps are in terms of capability. But but let people know enough so that they're developing things along the right line and then they've got a chance of competing for something that you actually need and they've invested time and effort and money in. Yeah, and I think that's a great thing the hammer does is putting out those problems in an unclassified way so that the companies can have an idea of what we're looking for. And we might have to, you know, we're, we might be saying it in a vague way at times, like, you know, we want something that can do automated alerting across 10 different data sets on a ArcGIS system. That's not really what we're using, but it's something that says it close enough that you can get to the idea. That was our very right. first solicitation we put out on Hammer. Uh, to me, there are other barriers to working together. One is you know, the very first one that the CIA has to overcome and the other intelligence agency is, does the company even want to work with us? That's a fair one, because um, if you're working with us, maybe that makes it harder for you to make money working in the civilian sector because of trust problems. Get yeah. it. The second one in the intelligence community is we don't have DOD dollars. Uh, so if a company got their first contract from the Pentagon, they may have and often have very unrealistic expectations of what I can afford to pay and my colleagues can afford to pay. And we have to have those conversations. And the, the third is... I guess there's actually a third and a fourth. The third is we don't understand companies and business, and we have to work with you in a way to leave you space to make money. Uh, your job in the commercial world is to make money so you can survive and grow. Our job is to get it as cheap as we actually can. So we need to have uh, real conversations and real partnerships as we start as we go into these relationships together to make sure that we've left you space. Because if we didn't, if we wrote a contract that said I can deliver Jane's stuff to the entire world, well then, how's Jane's going to profit from that? Uh, one, I would say that's a terrible contract, and none of us should have signed it. It's a great one for me. It's a terrible one for you. We have to understand that and be able to go into these things as partners. And the the last one on that is, well, forget that one. We'll come back to that. So. I was going to take us on, but I think we actually got there all by, by ourselves. This what do commercial organizations need to do better, in your view, Randy, to engage more effectively with the IC? We've kind of st we've started touching on it right there. But if you were if you were talking to an audience of commercial organizations, small or large, in the open source 
centre that you run. What is the big message you want them to take away in terms of what they could be doing better to help you and therefore help themselves? Uh, tell us what you're doing and tell us what you're doing with the rest of the community because that opens our eyes to what may be possible inside of our part because they, they may have a great contract with FBI and they don't think about how that could be used here or with DOD how to be used here. So help us understand the art of the possible of what you're doing and Likewise, you understand uh, where we're coming from and how we're going to have to partner on this journey. Yeah, yeah and, that's a good point. And some things are going to be hard. I mean, our systems are different. You know, when we're working together on the on our unclassified systems, it's closer to what the outside world it, world is. But as we start to move forward, and if it's something we want on the high side, we're probably going to need your engineers and engineering help, and we're going to have to work with you to make sure that that's possible too. Uh, a lot of things that'll work on the low side. You, it's like you want an auto summarization tool on the low side. It's great. It'll work. It'll work every time. Um, you bring it to the high side and ask it to run across our own data and the metadata at the top and the bottom and the varied way that different reports from different agencies look. They can screw that entire thing up. And when they come in back saying your most common term is top secret and location is Washington or London, completely unhelpful. Yeah, um, yeah. So we have to work together to tune that technology to work as well. Uh, yeah. But it really has to, we really have to approach it as a partnership. And it's increasingly important as technology is advancing. Uh, if I want to go hire hardware and software people or hardware and software companies, I can, we can all find that. But if we need artificial intelligence or machine learning or you name it, the next thing is coming data science, the universities haven't kicked out enough of those yet. So we're all competing and we're all for that same talent. It makes that talent expensive and hard to find. And it makes it that much more important that we work across private sector and government to partner on these problems. Yeah, I definitely like that point about the art of the possible. Um, it's not always easy. I can tell you that from Jane's perspective in the commercial sector, you do sometimes see opportunities across agencies, but you've got to kind of nudge the first agency to talk to the other one because they don't want you telling the other agency that you're doing X, Y, or Z with them with this capability always. Um, so that lack of sharing, which we've certainly encountered in other, other conversations, also occurs in the commercial relationships. But I definitely like the point, um, art of the possible, help us understand what we could be doing or should be doing, um, could be a really, really obvious and helpful thing. Sean, you've had the benefit of working in enough different uh, organizations, some of them very supported by commercials, other less so. Have you seen any big lessons in terms of what the commercial organizations should or could be doing to better support the IC you've been a part of? Yeah, I think it, it, it's a it's a cultural issue. Is um, remain engaged. Tell them. So we always think that it, within the uh, within the commercial world that we need to wait for the demand signal. But it's a conversation that needs to be. So it's building trust by saying, look, is this is this what you really need? And then testing and adjusting. You know, demonstrating what you're doing, what stage you're at, without without getting too ridiculous about it. But it's got to be a proper partnership. And I feel at the moment, certainly in many cases, you know, there's a written demand signal goes out there. This is this is probably more true of the UK actually. That gets interpreted in a different way, you know, because language does matter by the commercial company. They develop something and come back and say, here you are, and they go, well, that's not what we wanted. But at no stage there's been check understanding. So, so I used to get frustrated within within defence when I I used to you know be one of those unusual people that did reach out to industry, uh, but I probably didn't articulate what I needed quite enough. But they'd go away and you and come back and think right we spent lots and lots of dollars on this thinking have you we didn't even know you were doing that you know so it's it's having the constant conversation 
and and that that is probably the the biggest frustration I think for many commercial companies is is that they don't think it's a it's a proper partnership and it's down to that word trust isn't it you know yeah. and, and and the reality check from the the IC or whichever government organization say look we're probably not going to invest in this you know or there's not going to be a huge amount of money in this or we are genuinely interested but you're not definitely going to win having that reality check of a conversation that you know how much resource and effort to put into it yeah yeah well certainly the words partnership leap out at me from that that observation sorry randy i cut you off no and in talking about the development i mean in if i'm using my own developers we're using lean agile development principles where the developers are working right with the users so the analysts or the operators get or even the OSC professionals, if they're building for us, get what we need. And if you don't do that type of development, it always ends up 10 to 15 or worse degrees off. And it can take you forever to get it back to what you actually wanted to use. And by that time, the user's already lost trust in it. It's the yeah. same for purchasing it um, because what's coming out of that box isn't going to be exactly what the IC needs. And we need to have that same lean, agile development work with that company to make it work for our systems to solve our exotic problems. And so that goes all, all back. We have to be partners in a way we've never done before. And I'm really proud of the success I think we're starting to have in that and working with companies and helping uh, develop these relationships and broaden who we're working with in, these, in this yeah. scope. So I've heard partnership, I've heard trust, I've heard engagement and consistent engagement, to your point, Sean. Yeah, those all leap out of me. They, re they certainly resonate with me. Certainly where James has had the benefit of many, many decades of working in the spaces we're, we're talking about here, that engagement should be easy, but it's not as easy. We're making it not as easy as we could be. And I think that's one of those things we'll take away from this conversation for sure. Engage build trust, maintain the engagement, endure through that process, and you're more likely to be successful. Um, because time is always precious, I'm going to start to draw stumps here. Sorry, a cricket reference. Uh, bring the conversation to an end. Um, what I'd like to do, and I often do in these conversations, I think I always do in these conversations, is look for that one takeaway. What's the one thing, Randy, you would like the audience to take away from this conversation about the open source environment in the US from the agency's perspective? I'll come to you first, Randy. Um, Sean, as always, I'll come to you next, <laughs> if I don't interject mine first. Um, Randy, what's the one thing you'd like the audience to take away from your perspective as the director of the Open Source Centre for the CIA? I think we talked a lot about technology, we talked about innovation, we talked about partnership. Um, a point that I started to make earlier and then forgot, um, it's, really our, it's really our people that make us special. And um, people need to understand the common folks who are out there, I, I wish that they would understand that more, that you know, we, while we talked about tradecraft, it's the people who employ that tradecraft and develop that tradecraft. And the OSINT professionals that we have, the the way they can find those diamonds in the rough and find that, that needle that we actually need and to do it in a way that protects people's privacy uh, and meets all of our legal standards that are across the world uh, and the UK standards may be different than US standards, but we are also we're out there making sure we're doing things properly. Um, that's all the people behind it. Uh, that's and they have dedicated their lives to serving these nations and protecting our freedom and democracy and all the things that make it where people choose to work in the intelligence community instead of the, the business world. You know, they are sacrificing money often time uh, with families and whatnot to do these these jobs and and they are real. Uh, they are real heroes, and while they're not making money, there are movies about OSINT, 
Um, they really could because these people are special. Uh, they have great techniques. They have languages out the wazoo that are novel and, and passion for what they're doing and protecting our countries. And I say countries because we do work across those liaison communities and, and work as units um, in a way that should make uh, the American and the British and our other partners' um, publics really proud. And I, I know I am, and that's what astounds me and keeps me coming into work every day is how can I be a servant leader for those officers in OSC and the greater OSN community? Well, that's fantastic. A heartfelt comment. Thank you. Sean. Oh, good. You are coming to me next. So um, <laughs> I agree with all that, Randy. Absolutely. We're never going to replace our brilliant people. You know, some of the analysts that I've come across from all of the agencies who can not now, particularly, especially the youngsters who can not only analyse and have got really good ge geopolitical understanding, but also probably now to code as well, which is a bit scary as far as I'm concerned. And I'm going to step straight out of character for my point, because I'm normally a glass half empty guy because I'm an analyst. But I think the big things I've taken out of this is encouragement and, and optimism. I mean, you, you've really opened some eyes there, Randy, in terms of how the organization thinks about open source, but also what it's actually doing. You know, I don't think always the IC, for good reasons and for bad reasons as well, always advertise what it's actually up to as much. And, you know, I've been really educated on this, so really grateful in terms of, oh, yeah, you know, without being arrogant, but the IC has clearly got this and it's moving out on it. As opposed to, you know, like you said at the first, just just uh, the people outside the community just writing white papers saying, why, why isn't the IC doing this? Now it's time for an open source, et cetera. Well, they're doing it from a point of ignorance. But, you know, maybe there's something that we could do better from within the community to to get that out. And, and this is a classic case of doing exactly that. Yeah, fantastic. And in fact, Sean, as is often the case the other way around, you've just eaten my sandwiches because that was exactly the point I was going to make. The, um, the point I've taken away from this, Randy, is exactly what Sean just said, so I'm just going to underscore it. I think what's been really refreshing about this conversation, uh, apart from your candor, is that it's very clear you as the director of that organization at the center of the CIA really do get the point about the power and utility of open source. You fully appreciate the need for the good people that you've got working for you, who you quite rightly uh, lauded a few minutes ago as being at the center of that success allied to that, which is almost sounded like a second point, which I'm not allowing anybody else, but I'm going to get away with it because it's uh, my chance to speak, is I think the organizational point that you made as well, which kind of speaks to the point Sean just made, people don't appreciate that the organization they're calling for is already in place. It's there, the open source uh, intelligence agency uh, that directed your of. Is that, that for me feels like one of those things just isn't well understood. If it was understood, people, people would be spending less time uh, talking about the need for another agency. Um, but let's not start that conversation again. So it comes to me then to bring a pause button to the conversation, Randy, but not before I've said a very, very sincere thank you. I can only begin to imagine how busy you will be in the organization you work for. And to take the time out to speak to us about a topic we think is really important, clearly you think is important, is a magnificent thing that you've done. So thank you, Randy, for your time. That was really, really generous of you. Thank you. Thank you for your time and for the 120 plus years of James being one of the leaders in the open source community. And uh, we love your work uh, and your expertise in the military equipment and military affairs. And, and as we're seeing you grow even beyond that um, is inspiring to the rest of us as well. And um, thank you for your time. Thank you, Randy. And thank you, Sean. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on the world of intelligence.
make sure to visit our website, janes.com slash podcast, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, so you'll never miss an episode.